Will you pray with me? Father God, we come to you. We do cry, holy, holy, holy. We thank you for being a loving God that wants to be with us. You delight in our worship. You're honored when we spend time in your word. Lord, I just ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing to you in all we do this morning. Pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I'd like to begin this morning by telling you about two very different men that I know. The first man grew up in the church, but had few solid Christian consistent role models in his life. He went to youth group and campus life in high school, went to a Christian college, did all the right things, followed the rules, participated in campus worship, but still often felt that he just couldn't measure up to what the world expected of him or what he expected of himself. Anger and sadness were things that were well-learned in his home. And they were his constant companions throughout most of his life. His life was plagued with doubt, envy, and bitterness. He got married right after college and landed a good job, but when years of infertility that plagued he and his wife were followed by his wife experiencing a serious and unexpected health incident that almost took her life, he fell into a deep place of darkness and anger at God. He believed in Jesus at some level, but with very little solid foundation, his life crumbled around him, and he felt like he had no hope of ever finding his way out. The second man loved the Lord and was blessed with loving Christian friends that he met with on a regular basis. He served in the church some and dedicated time to a weekly Bible study where he was challenged by other guys to live a life that moved him closer to being the disciple Jesus called him to be. He still went through seasons of sadness and withdrawing into himself and went away for a while from much involvement with God's people. But when a season of sadness entered his life and he buried family member after family member in a really short period of time, the God-given foundation of his faith led him to run towards God and trust in a divine plan that he didn't fully understand. His family, friends, and community of faith sustained him, and God provided strength in his grief that was way beyond his comprehension. So I'm sure by now that any of you that know me at all or have heard parts of my story in the past realize that both of the men I just described are me. While the time periods of the two stories are more than 25 years apart, when I look at my life honestly, there are still times when that first man wants to take over my heart and draw me back down into that place of darkness and despair. So what made the difference? The second man had established roots that went down into God's word. And he had allowed the Spirit of God to expand his faith, so when the storms came, there was a foundation to stand on. Today, we're beginning a new sermon series called The Undivided Self. In our recent series, series on church partnership, we were reminded in several beautiful ways that we are called to be like Jesus, to be his disciples. Christian philosopher Dallas Willard once said that a disciple of Jesus today is someone who asks, what would Jesus do if he were me? So today, we begin to ask ourselves some hard questions. 
You can throw up that, first, that next slide, Chuck. What would Jesus do if he were us at home, with our friends, as a neighbor, at work or at school, and as a citizen of our local area, the nation, and the world? Is the person you are in all of those different spaces a reflection of Jesus? Are you less like Jesus in some places than you are in others? If someone made a secret documentary of your life over the course of an average week, as you move and live in each of those spaces, as you spend time on your cell phone, as you spend money, would it sometimes look like you were five different people? I am very certain that my life would often look inconsistent from the outside looking in. And from the inside looking out, I know that it is. I'm not a trained preacher, as Brent said. I'm just a guy in the pew who loves Jesus. So as I prepared today's message, I did it with the thought, what do I need to hear about living as an undivided self? So my prayer is that the things that I felt I need to, needed to hear were, will resonate with you as well. Over the next six weeks, we'll be looking closely at each of these questions as we wrestle with how we can take the divided, fragmented parts of ourselves and our hearts and align all the things that make each of us unique into undivided, Christ-pursuing, holiness-chasing disciples of Jesus. But are there parts of our life and our day-to-day activities that are Christian and others that just aren't? So getting back to the two men I talked about at the beginning, both still live inside me, and that creates a tension that sometimes can be ignored and can sometimes still shame me, but it can also convict me and drive me to put to death the old self and pursue a flourishing life of a disciple of Jesus that I'm called to live. So we're starting today from a place where we all need to admit that we we are often divided selves. So let's move now to today's scripture passage from the 10th and 11th chapters of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. He starts chapter 10 by discussing why it is important that the believers there never become part of an idolatrous worship service and talked about eating sacrifices from those pagan idolatrous worships. The people reading his letter were in the Roman Greco-Gentile world and they had likely worshipped Zeus and a lot of other gods before they came to a saving faith in Jesus. He talks about the food, but it's really not about the food. It's about the idolatry. So we'll pick up his teaching in the 23rd verse of chapter 10. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thanksgiving, with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, 
Greek, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So let's unpack this a bit. Paul starts out in verse 23, telling back, I'm thinking, to the Corinthians the things that he has, I'm assuming, had them say to him. I have the right to do anything. Other Bible translations say it as, everything is permissible, or all things are lawful. No matter how you say it, it can sound a little self-centered. It sounds a bit arrogant, and dare I say, sounds like a whole lot of people we all know. And likely, we've all sounded this way way more times than we'd care to admit. Although we may not actually verbalize it, how many times are our attitudes like this? I have the right to do anything. I'm free to do anything. God will forgive me. I'm no longer bound by the law. I'm free in Christ. I know I can't cuss at church or when I'm around other Christians, but it's okay at work or out to dinner with friends. A few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, Paul raised the same issue. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul is telling those in the church at Corinth that it's not about the rules. It's time to break away from the legalism of their culture and the Jewish customs. It's about grace. The true call here is do everything for the glory of God. Paul's counterpoint to the notion, I have the right to do anything, is simply no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And therein lies that tension. We are free. And if we are seeking God's will and pressing into a full life of living as his disciple, we can, in some sense, do anything we want because our wants will be in harmony with God's will for us. But if I'm focusing on that I have the right to do anything, I'm entirely missing the point that as a disciple of Christ, my primary focus should be outward and not inward. So how do we do that? How do we focus first on the good of others? It can be pretty easy some days to just sort of float by in survival mode, especially if we listen at all to the news. There is suffering all around us that we can't escape, disease, corruption, war, natural disasters, betrayal, death, violence, political upheaval, and financial pressures. We are broken people in a broken world. In this broken world, we are bombarded with endless sadness and endless temptations. Seductive voices whisper untruths in our ears and present them as truth. We are tempted to desire things that are outside God's plan for us. Our natural instinct is to think of ourselves first, to have meeting our needs become our top priority. For God's children, the power of sin has been broken in God's justifying grace, but the presence of sin still remains around us and within us. Our problem isn't environmental, it's internal. We have a sin problem. And sin is deeper than bad behavior. And trying to do better isn't the solution. If we had the power to change ourselves without God's help, Jesus wouldn't have even had to come to earth. The whole story of the gospel, all of scripture, is a story of people who are desperately trapped in selfishness and sin and have no hope except for the rescuing grace of the Redeemer. When we give up on our own righteousness, 
and cry out to God for mercy and grace, when we confess our sins and admit we can't fix ourselves, only then can God truly work in our hearts and renew us from the inside out so we can focus outside of ourselves. As we navigate life in a broken world, many of the things we do and the things that happen around us are just stuff. We eat, we drive our cars, we go to work and school, we mow the grass or shovel snow, we put our kids to bed, we brush our teeth, and we collapse into bed to get a few hours of sleep before we get up and we do it all over again. When we consider all the mundane parts of life, and let's face it, most of what happens in life are just those little mundane things, does everything need to be looked at through the lens of secular or spiritual? Maybe that's not even the right question. If we are to live all in for Christ, then all of life is for him. There is an important question then that we do need to ask ourselves as we look at our divided hearts and our divided lives. Am I okay with the fact that I have two or more different people living inside of me? One of the best descriptions in the Bible of this notion of a divided self is in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. And this is one of those typical passages in Romans that are like, you know, an eight-paragraph sentence, it feels like. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do not do what I want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. As Paul so clearly points out, there is a war raging inside each and every one of us, a war that only God's power and strength can win. It's a war between the two halves of our divided selves, the part that wants to please God and live for him, and the part that only wants to please ourselves and our desires. Just as we can't earn God's grace or deserve his mercy, we also can't win this war on our own. I'm reminding, reminded of a message that Lisa brought to us back in October in which she challenged us to develop a biblical worldview, a way of living that has God's word at the center. I loved her notion in that message that it isn't about a formula, but a forming. As we more and more are formed into God's image, the most important step in developing a biblical worldview is to read the Bible. Don't just read about it. Don't just listen to songs about it. Don't just listen to sermons about it on Sunday. 
read the Bible. I went to a concert a few weeks ago, and there was a pastor there that said something that really struck a chord with me. He said, we don't read the Bible to get through it. We read the Bible for it to get through to us. Let that sink in for a minute. We don't read the Bible to get through it. We read the Bible for it to get through to us. This is part of the message where I really need to smack myself upside the head. I read about the Bible way more than I read it. And while Christian authors are a gift to us to help us understand God's word, I should first and foremost be reading the word itself before looking for someone to explain it to me and expound on its truths. How often do we fly, do all of us fly through devotions and Bible reading just to get it checked off of our to-do list? Not treating it much differently than responding to a text message, cooking dinner, or folding laundry. We do it and we tell ourselves we've accomplished something. And God just shakes his head and grieves. He was ready to be present with us, but we really weren't present with him. He was ready to bless us, but we missed it. In the final sermon in our Genesis series, Brent wonderfully reminded us that God wants a relationship with us. He relentlessly pursues us. And like the people of Israel, how often do we find ourselves in a cycle of brokenness, rebellion, repentance, repeat? Again, last Sunday, we were reminded that God desires to be near you and me. The God of the universe wants to be with us and in us. Let's admit it, we are too easily satisfied. We're satisfied with a little bit of theological knowledge, a degree of biblical literacy, occasional moments of ministry, and a measure of personal growth. We are sadly satisfied with being just a little bit better when God's goal is that we become completely remolded into his image. We get easily distracted by the temporary glories of the created world and we lose sight of God's goal for us. We quit pressing on, but Jesus never stops pressing in. He is relentless in working to redeem us from ourselves. While we are satisfied, he is never satisfied and is always by our side if we only see him and accept the power and the transformation that he's offering us. Colossians 3.17 says this, and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. At the end of the passage we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul challenges us with the words, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. If following Christ is our example, is the way we need to live, let's consider the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, 
You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, Jesus says, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Just as we don't develop a close, meaningful relationship with our spouses, our children, or any of our friends and family without being intentional about it, so we cannot expect that our daily walk with Jesus will continue to grow and mature if we're not acting intentionally to nurture it. It should be our focus, our driving passion, and our ultimate goal to become more and more like Jesus here on earth. Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And from Psalm 86, verses 11 and 12, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart, that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Verse 11 in the English Standard Version says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. One of the many online sites that I follow regularly is called Wisdom Hunters. And one of their authors summed up the spirit of Psalm 8611 beautifully. Go to the next slide. An undivided heart is a student of the Lord's for life. There is no arriving in this life. A united heart does not avoid the difficult path of obedience. It submits to its Savior and models him. Obedience to God's truth becomes a habit of living life with an undivided heart. Your undivided heart propels you along his prayerful and proper path. He walks with you in the valley of death and on the mountaintop of life. A faith-focused heart invites your Heavenly Father in. It is a fulcrum for your faith. He walks with you in the valley of death. Many of you know the depth of the valley of death that I've walked through. Between April and October of 2020, I buried my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my father, and then my wife. Three days after my wife died, our two grandchildren were born, beautiful twin boys that will never know their grandma, 
who would have loved them so, so much. Since that time, my wife's brother also passed away. Her entire immediate family, gone. The people I spent holidays with for over 40 years, gone. That second man that I talked about at the beginning, the one that ran to God and not away from God, please know that that path wasn't a straight one. I wept many tears and often screamed at God in anguish. I was angry at times. I was bitter at times. But praise God, I didn't stay that way. The first guy I talked about spent years in bitterness and anger. And I knew that I needed to try a different way. God's way. A way that would mean putting feet to my faith and actions to my words. If someone would have told that first guy that someday I'd be an elder at a harbor church, that I'd be a leader in men's group, that I'd be asked to give a message in church, trust me, that first guy would have laughed out loud. Honestly, this second guy also laughed at first when Brent and Lisa asked me to preach. I believe my first word was, what? <clears throat> so true. But here I am. I am not standing here even pretending to be some super Christian who has it all figured out. Far from it. But I am standing here able to testify of God's amazing blessing in my life and of a strength well beyond my own that has sustained me and given me purpose and meaning out of my sorrow and grief. Eric shared his wonderful next step story this morning. And we talk a lot here at Harbor Life about next steps. We tell those stories to encourage each other to take just one more step. Whether it's a step toward something or a step away from something. And a lot of times both. Let's look now at 2 Peter 1 verses 3 through 8. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. Isn't that as beautiful? We can participate in God's divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." I love how this passage talks about adding one thing to the next, to the next. Such a beautiful picture to me of what next steps means. Such great examples of how each of us can layer on more and more of what God offers us to make our lives flourish in his love. Being a follower of Jesus is a lifelong adventure with a constant goal of living in wholehearted, undivided devotion Let's read part of that passage again. And I put this slide together, and we're going to do it from the bottom up, just so we can sort of see the crescendo. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, 
and to mutual affection, love. Becoming a mature follower of Jesus does not and cannot happen in isolation. Let's look to the words of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. As I mentioned earlier, we spent a few weeks recently talking about partnership, but the goal of those sermons was not to convince you to sign a commitment card. Yes, we asked for that, but the goal of those sermons was to bring you to a stronger commitment to Jesus, to a richer commitment to community, to invite you into a space where you have brothers and sisters to encourage you in your walk with Christ and to whom you will offer encouragement in their striving to live undivided lives. We are all invited to lock arms with each other and take steps, next steps, together, helping and holding up those who are limping and broken and hurting, those who feel they can't even take one more step. We have men's ministry, women's ministry, children's and youth ministries, and a lot of other ministries here, not to offer a place just for social connection and fun. The purpose of all that happens here at Harbor Life and in Christ Church everywhere is to call us to repentance, to strengthen our faith, and allow us to learn from each other and from his word how to become faithful followers of Jesus. We don't sing songs of worship for entertainment. We sing songs of worship to praise God for who he is and what he's done and to set our minds on his kingdom. We don't give offerings just to pay the electric bill. We are called to offer God a portion of the resources he's given us as a thank offering and to further his kingdom work. I want to take us back to where we started this morning. I'll encourage all of us to spend time thinking about the kinds of people we are in the different places where we live day to day. Think about what you would consider to be your inner core values at home, at work, at church, in your neighborhood. If you're feeling bold and are ready for some honest feedback, ask your family members or a close friend if they see in you the values your mind says that you live out. Let's all set aside some time for reflection, thinking about who we believe we are deep down inside where only God knows what's really at our core. Be honest with yourself and don't try to hide it from God. He already knows. And please remember, if you love Jesus, your identity is in Christ. We are not our mistakes or our shortcomings or our failures. We are not our hurt or our brokenness. We are much-loved children of God. I'd like to end today with a quote from Paul David Tripp in New Morning Mercies. It is a daily battle, one that is free of physical weapons, political parties, and national boundaries. It is a battle that has been raging since the garden and will not stop until the war is finally won. This battle is not fought between people. It is fought within people. 
It is a much greater danger to each of us than war between nations will ever be. It is a battle of awe. We were created to live in a real, heart-gripping, agenda-setting, behavior-forming awe of God. But other awes kidnap our hearts. Awe of creation, awe of other people, and awe of ourselves shove the awe of God out of our hearts. So we need grace to see again, to tremble again, and to bow down again at the feet of the one who deserves our awe. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Lord, bring us to a point where we can honestly look at our lives, we can examine our hearts. Lord, it's our desire to live for you, to be drawn closer to you, to live undivided lives. May we go from this place knowing that you love us even when we mess up, but also knowing that you are always there with us to bring us closer to you. In Christ Jesus, our Savior's name, we pray. Amen.